Hello, this is Jenny Nichols, and this is Local Share Green Action Podcast, where we hear from people across the U.S. that share their stories about work they are doing in their local community with a common goal of taking green action that helps care for people and wildlife and the environment in our local towns and cities. Our goal is that we might be able to learn from and inspire each other while we find our own solution-based action that lets us live meaningful, sustainable, eco-friendly lives while cleaning, protecting, and repairing the environment. Today on our podcast, I'm speaking with someone who founded a nonprofit organization that creates innovative solutions to prevent trash and waste in her local city. I am speaking with Crystal Dreisbach. Crystal is a solutionary whose life goal is to disrupt the status quo of our take and trash economy. She is the founder and executive director of a nonprofit organization called Don't Waste Durham, which creates solutions that prevent trash. She invented and operates Green to Go, a citywide reusable takeout container service for restaurants and grocery stores. Welcome, Crystal. Thank you so much for having me, Jenny. So we're so excited to speak with you and find out more about your path of green action that led you to innovative solutions to reduce trash in Durham, North Carolina. So what helped plant the seed for you to want to take some kind of action to address takeout food waste issues? I started reading into uh, more and more about styrofoam. I was originally interested in it from sort of the uh, public health, material health, angle. But as I found out more about um, the environmental impacts, I decided to really take it on. I thought there must be a better way. When I looked around, I just didn't see anyone doing anything meaningful uh, to get rid of styrofoam takeout containers. And I sort of thought up this uh, idea that we could make uh, a new way to supply restaurants with reusable containers and that those customers could um, use them and bring them back. And I thought this would eliminate trash altogether. Excellent. So after you decided on heading down that path, what were some of the first steps that you had to, to, to solve in kind of getting that together? Yeah, the first thing that I did was submit my idea to a competition in a magazine was called Extraordinary Solutions to Everyday Problems. And I thought, surely someone has had this idea before, or uh, if they've never had it before, maybe I'll win the contest. And I got runner-up, and I got lots of kudos for the idea. And that sort of gave me the validation I needed to keep going. And uh, some of the first steps I took were to actually quit my job in public health and decide to start working on policy around styrofoam takeout containers. I had written to all these restaurants um, to ask them to consider switching to a more sustainable alternative. And I thought that Durham, North Carolina, could be one of the cities that looks into policy change around this. So I started working on that, and it led to the creation of our nonprofit, Don't Waste Durham. Uh, One of the key pieces to get this particular Green to Go program started was that we really? I really needed to gain the buy-in from the people who would then later become the team to actually implement it. That was one of the steps was we were very lucky to have a nonprofit that was full of very passionate people who, once they got the idea, all the right ingredients came together. People who 
liked the idea and bought into it. And then a community uh, very supportive of progress and entrepreneurship and a lot of great local restaurants who are willing to experiment. So those were really the first steps that we took. So you did create the nonprofit just slightly before you took this project on? Exactly. Yeah, it all came about from starting with the policy change, and there was a committee of the Environmental Affairs Board of our city, and they started this committee just because I had done this presentation on single-use waste, and they liked it so much, they established this committee um, to work on this specific issue, but it grew to a hundred or more people who were not just upset about styrofoam, but all kinds of other waste, and there was really no one tackling Uh, You know, lots of groups tackle litter, lots of groups tackle recycling, but there was really no one working in this space that worked on creating creating new systems that could prevent the trash in the first place. A lot of people encouraged me to start a, a nonprofit that there was really a need for it and that this would be really filling a gap in our community. Uh, as an outlet for people who are concerned about these things and would like to do something, but really need the organization and structure that a nonprofit could give. We've been doing it ever since 2013. So, so you had to uh, find a location. Was that one of the initial hurdles? Oh, I'm sorry, when I say location, I should define a location in which to clean reusable containers. Yes, that actually is one of the key ingredients to a reuse program that is probably 75% of the battle. You know, we had our Don't We Stir Em office, which uh, houses all of our programs, not just Green to Go, but then, of course, we needed a wash facility, and we, we, were, we are a vastly underfunded nonprofit, so it's not like we could build our own facility right away. You know, the best way to harness resources that you don't have is to create partnerships, and we looked and looked and looked until we found the right partner, another nonprofit that happened to have a large state-of-the-art commercial kitchen that was available to us after hours. And they gave us space for our drying rack, and we were able to make that our wash facility home for three years. I mean, that was that was probably one of the key reasons that we exist today was because we found that partner who could give us the space to create the infrastructure we needed to operate green to go So a very important piece. Excellent. Excellent. So initially, did you already know about a container that would hold up to rewashing and like that? Or did you have to kind of do a big search? We, we did look into it. Um, there are actually, surprisingly, not a lot of great options out there. So we went with the one that most people go with, which is an eco takeout uh, container that was originally designed for university dining halls and in fact is sort of the go-to container and many other reuse citywide reuse programs like ours use them as well. They are what I think of as not necessarily designed for a citywide reuse program. They're designed for a closed loop system where people return to the same location every day like a college cafeteria. And so there are things we'd like to see in a container. We are designing our own containers, which we think are probably, possibly, the first ones ever designed with the intention of use in a citywide reuse service. The little bento boxes and Tupperwares we use in our own homes are great for individual use, for example, but they're usually designed to you know, put leftovers and put them in our fridge, and they just don't have the the durability, the longevity, 
the they don't stand up to the high heat dishwasher or the abuse or have the material health and maximum recyclability that we like we would like to see in a container. So we were able to find a container that works well, works adequately, but we're now with our experience uh, behind us and our knowledge of what's needed, we're going to try to create the superior container. Does that mean that you're thinking about maybe silicon as opposed to as opposed to plastic? You know, we we have we're working with sustainable materials folks from local universities and we've done a, a sort of analysis of all the various options that we have in terms of materials, uh, compared them against the criteria that we have. We have a lot of need to have deal breaker criteria. If we don't have those, we simply can't go with that material. And then we have a lot of nice to have. And some of them, for example, some of our criteria are more than just physical criteria. Some of them are what materials have the lowest ecological footprint in their whole life cycle, all the way from resources extracted from the earth all the way to their final resting place or their recyclability. And some some of our criteria also, you know, what are what are the social issues inherent in, in the container? Are there people exploited in the making of that material? And so we, we kind of look at it from all angles and have we we have landed on, at least for the time being with the knowledge we have, with continuing with this number five polypropylene plastic. Interestingly, I learned that not all polypropylene is the same. They might say number five on the bottom, but what's really important is which chemical additives were used in the resin for that product um, to give it the qualities that it has. For example, stiffness or flexibility, and it's the chemical additives that we really need to be concerned about. So we're learning a lot about that, and one of our top criteria is going with a product that meets all of our criteria and is has a resin platinum rated for material health. Excellent. What were some of you had a background in public health? Did that help you with maybe working through the system to make sure that um, there were checks and balances in terms of whatever processes for disinfecting and things like that that you had to go through? Yeah, so um, I think uh, having the, my public health background helped in a ton of ways. Um, one of the one of the more even more important things than specifics of our operations in the health code was my knowledge of how to engage stakeholders. So who are all the people in the community that would be concerned or caring about this or supportive of it or could be a potential blocker. So one of the most uh, important things I ever did by accident in this process, and I always tell every other person considering opening a similar company, is that very early on, probably two or three years before we ever started Green to Go, I started inviting the county health department folks to our Don't Waste Durham meeting. And I said, here's a program I've I've thought about starting for many years. Told them a little bit about it, and I said, "What would be the red flags, or the or the challenges, or what would we need to be thinking about?" And at first, they said, "Oh no, reusables. We could never do that. That is unsanitary." But then, when I explained that, "No, no, no, we would be supplying the restaurants with clean, sanitized containers that we collected and washed centrally, so that we are the supplier, and customers never bring in their own containers to a restaurant. There's no, uh, you know, vectors of disease." They said, "Oh." You 
know, I've never thought of that before. Um, that's a whole new concept. Now, if you were to do that, you would need to think about this. You would need to think about that. And so what we did was bring them in early on and give them a sense of ownership of the project. So they ended up actually helping us design the service and help us write our wash protocol. So even more important than knowing the specifics of sanitization, even more important than that is to build the relationship and the buy-in from the stakeholders who could either support or create a barrier to you. So that's definitely one thing that helped me um, from my public health career. The other thing was, you know, I always tell my intern some of the best but the one, pretty much the best thing I ever learned in grad school was how to read, absorb, and apply research. You know, that there's so many wonderful peer-reviewed research studies out there. But if you're not really familiar with research design or how to really interpret the conclusion into something you can apply to policy and program and practice, you know, then it's not going to be very useful to you. And so one of my jobs before I left public health was to really make sure that research done, you know, by academia or by um, large research institutes just didn't get finished, you know, completed and then put on a shelf. You know, research I don't believe is meant to be put on a shelf. I believe we're meant to learn from it and then figure out how can we use that information. And so everything we've ever done in Don't Waste Your Own has been evidence-based. So we don't take any action or recommend any policy or implement any program without having assessed the needs and understanding deeply what is the existing knowledge base that we can base what we do on. Excellent. So did you work with individuals in academia or did you just connect with the existing research and try to turn it into something that you could act on? Well, uh, yeah, for example, before you start a reusable takeout container service, you have to create demand for it. And in order to get demand, people have to recognize it as a problem. You can say, oh, plastic waste is a problem, but if you can't lay out the facts in a way that's evidence-based and also relevant to people, it's almost like it takes a combination of understanding of where to find the research, how to evaluate its, its quality, and how to interpret it, as well as having your basic uh, marketing and consumer behavior science knowledge uh, that you can com- to combine it and be able to be persuasive and be able to back up everything that you know in the research. So, you know, I don't I didn't have to necessarily work with academia, but my knowledge of where to find research in which organization, you know, the WHO, for example, how to navigate all of the great best practices and existing knowledge base that they have, how to harness that for all the things that we do. Um, WHO is just one example, um, is really uh, really valuable. When you're when you're working in any of these uh, kind of spaces, especially innovation in, on environmental issues. Excellent. So initially, it sounds like you were speaking with restaurants and grocery stores, maybe some time before the uh, project actually was underway. Or how did that? How did the rollout work out? Yeah, absolutely. So it's sort of a it's always a chicken and the egg problem. Uh, when you innovate, you know, you really, in some ways, you often have to have a service before people will buy it. And before people can buy something, you know, you have to, but if you don't have uh, people bought into the idea, you can't design a service. So it just goes in circles. So what we did, and which I think is looking back a good way um, to have done it, is 
we we harnessed what we call our early adopter restaurants. So restaurants within our network, people, uh, perhaps we had a friend who knows this restaurant owner, or perhaps we know a restaurant owner ourselves. We would approach those restaurants with the already established trust we have in knowing them and explain what we're doing. And as soon as they heard the phrase reusable takeout container service, they got very excited and said, absolutely. Without even knowing exactly what our service would look like and without us even knowing what the service would eventually look like, they were already on board. So they were their early adopters of these ideas. So when we were able to start our Kickstarter campaign to raise the startup funds, on our Kickstarter campaign page, we were able to list a list of 30 restaurants in in Durham that were very popular and beloved restaurants and said, these restaurants are ready to do this. If we raise the money we need to start it, these restaurants will automatically be on board and you'll be able to uh, get get your takeout trash free. And what that did was help us build credibility for our idea so that we could raise the money by appealing to the consumers who would uh, eventually become the users of the service. So as part of their pledging, committing to the financial resources uh, needed for the project, they also got a membership with their contribution. So we didn't even have a service yet, but when we started, we automatically had a group of hundreds of subscribers um, right off the bat. So that solved two problems. One, our who are the restaurant providers? Ah, we already have them worked out. And two, who will be the subscribers? And we already had that worked out too. How large of a staff did you need initially to actually start the program? We are largely a volunteer team and still, and at the very beginning, we were an all-volunteer team. So there was about a core group of eight of us that pitched in part-time to uh, raise the funds, uh, design the program, and then get it implemented. And those are just the core team. We also had, gosh, I would say a hundred people pitching in whenever we needed them to. For example, when we uh, built our return station um, from reuse materials that we were donated from the community, um, there were people ready to donate and transport the reuse lumber for us. We had community build days where we would build the return stations all together. And uh, all of that was done by a very large network of volunteers, which was easy to tap into because we'd already had this existing nonprofit, lots of passionate people involved. So Um, We didn't have any staff. Now, fast forward to today, we have two operational staff who are paid, and they do the bicycle riding and the dishwashing and the restocking of the restaurant. Excellent. So what might have been some of the challenges that you faced other than kind of what you've brought out so far, but like maybe in the actual day-to-day operation? Yeah, so I have the most creative team you can imagine, and we seem to be taking one challenge as they come and being able to hurdle over them. Uh, one really interesting challenge, which is sort of a challenge for these reuse programs everywhere, is the the business model that you use because that dictates how operations are going to work. So as an example, in green to go our customers uh, currently check out a container from a restaurant when they get their food, and they do this by scanning a QR code unique to that restaurant 
at their at the cash register. And of course, this re- this puts this relies on the subscriber, the customer, to remember to do it, to do it correctly. And you know that's not always 100% reliable. So one challenge was if you if the customer does not correctly scan the QR code, then our operational inventory of that restaurant's number of boxes is not accurate. Also, when you when the re- customer returns the container, they also scan a QR code at the return station before they drop it in. And that tells us how many containers are at each return station around town, so we can do our routes accordingly. And those things don't always happen. And so we've we are going to be changing our business model so that no one has to be a subscriber to use Green2Go and no one has to scan anything. Uh, we think that the first three years that we've done this has been a very good experiment and we've thought night and day about how we can reduce the financial burden on the customer and avoid this operational hurdle of relying on them to scan correctly. So this is the next uh, experiment that will start this fall. And so what a lot of times what you have operationally is, you know, a strange asset management issue. Luckily, we're very lucky in that containers do not go missing. We have a 97% recovery rate on our containers, meaning that even if a customer is not scanning correctly, they will still return their container. So what does that mean? That means that our the real issue comes in when our database tells us that restaurant A has six containers when actually they have zero because the customers haven't scanned the QR code, meaning that the restaurant then runs out of green-to-go re- containers before we get there to restock them. So we've had to do some creative things to reconcile the our database with the reality at each restaurant. So that's an example of a challenge that we're working on innovating to overcome. Right. That's great. So what are some of the other programs that you're looking at as an organization to deal with maybe uh, composting? Yeah. So one of the things that's happening, uh, a lot of cities do this thing. It's very expensive, but very revealing, is they have a waste characterization study done. It just means what are the contents of our residential and commercial trash. And it gives you sort of a pie chart. It tells you what all's in our trash. And sadly, at least in our town, and I think this is pretty typical across America, is that um, organics or things which could be composted make up about 30% of the trash of what is com- you know comprised of in the trash. That's a real shame for a few different reasons. Obviously, it's a waste of um, valuable resources that could be turned into nutrient-rich soil someplace if we were actually composting them. But the second part is that organics in the landfill, a lot of people don't know this, actually is one of the primary drivers of global climate change. People think, oh, it'll be all right. My banana peel will break down. It will break down in the dump, when actually that's not true. It will try to break down, but lots of things will be piled on top of it, meaning that uh, one of the key needs for composting is not occurring. And that's um, exposure to oxygen. It means that banana peel will break down anaerobically or without oxygen, whose byproduct is a giant amount of methane gas that escapes into the atmosphere and is one of the worst and most deadly emissions. So organics in our landfill is not a good thing. 
both from a waste perspective and a climate perspective, and just not having those nutrients put back into our soil. So it's definitely a thing because we like to create solutions that prevent trash to figure out how we can support effort to divert those organic um, from the landfill. And um, one of the things that we're not leading, but of course we support very much, is this experiment will make Durham, North Carolina, the first city in North Carolina to offer municipal curbside composting pickup. Uh, a lot of people don't know that backyard composting and commercial composting are very, very different. In backyard composting, we can put food scraps and coffee grounds and eggshells and leaves and all that kind of stuff, um, but we cannot put all the things in it that we can put in commercial composting. And so the municipal curbside composting would allow us to divert so much because we can put paper towels, we can put meat, bones, dairy, grease, um, basically anything that used to be a plant or an animal, we can put it in there. It'll go to a facility where it's broken down with a with huge amounts of high heat and turned into nutrient-rich soil, which then go to feed our back to feed our community. So we support that very much. The other thing that we're doing specifically is helping our public school system with lunchroom composting. And this is really interesting. Right now, in your typical school, in our school system, there are four large trash barrels in the in the cafeteria every lunch hour. And those trash bins get filled up entirely. And then they're t hauled out by the custodian out, to, out back and put in the dumps. When we implemented our lunchroom composting program in a few schools, each of those schools was able to go from four full trash barrels per lunch hour to a quarter or less of one trash can. And that's because the majority of um, what the kids are, are throwing away is compostable lunch trays and food scraps. And the real trash is just wrappers and things. So we were able to divert from every school every week 800 pounds of trash, 800 pounds a week. Per school. And if you, you know, one of the things people are incredibly motivated by, more so than environmental issues, is money. And so we can show that if the trash hauling contract, you know, is for uh, four full dumpsters each week, and now you only have to pay for one dumpster per week per school, well, that has just cut down your trash hauling expense, and maybe that's enough to offset the cost of composting pickup. So those are the kind of things that Don't Waste Durham uses our research knowledge to help show these things and create persuasive tools for administration and policymakers to really see these facts that, yes, we have to do good things to the environment, but they don't have to be costly. And where we can spend here, we can save here, and it all balances out and it's way better for our kids and the planet. So it takes a lot of advocacy to do those kind of things. Excellent. That's great. So so is uh, Durham now offering this curbside uh, scraps turning to compost? Yes. So it is coming very soon. It's going to start with a pilot of 100 households before they roll it out to the whole city. So we're very, everybody's very excited about that. They sent out a survey um, to see whether people would like to have that. And it was overwhelming how um, supportive people were about it. 
and it will cost a little extra money. That's that's another thing. But, um, you know, hauling of composting does cost money. So it will be a service, and we hope it won't get into equity issues where hopefully we can resolve that so that not just the people who can afford it can compost. Sure. So what are some of the ways that you and others have been enjoying the rewards of your efforts? Oh, thank you. Well, you know, I am still a volunteer. Do not get paid. Um, and we don't win a ton of grants, but we do what we are rich in passionate people in the community. And when they come up to me and shake my hand and thank me for my work, that really is the biggest reward for me. Like I can see with my own eyes, the energy I put into my community is paying off. I see our return stations around town. I see people walking around with green to go boxes um, and eating their food out of them that I don't even know. (laughs) Um, It's kind of like a, you know, a secret pleasure for me to see the the fruits of fruits of our labor. And then the other thing is, um, even though we're a small town in North Carolina and we have big ideas, but small projects, and we're not hugely like uh, successful in the economic sense, we have been recognized globally. And we have now over 350 cities have asked, have contacted us and asked us to teach them how to do it. And so that's uh, hugely validating. And in fact, um, as a nonprofit, because we just want to proliferate, replicate, reuse everywhere. We, of course, open source all of our tools and our best practices, and we are helping these other cities. And that just gives us the best feeling that you could imagine. That's great. So have you calculated how much trash you've saved from going into the landfill? Yes. So we have a little screen that pops up every time you return a container that tells you how many containers you've prevented from going into landfill and how many containers the community has collectively prevented. And we're, um, you know, we're close to 10,000 now. And even more impressive is the carbon emissions because using reusables, um, through our environmental impact calculator, shows that um, the carbon footprint of reusables is 80% less than uh, a styrofoam container. So we've made some really cool calculations. Like, for example, if you use a green-to-go container 56 times, it's it's the equivalent carbon offset as one acre of forest for a year. So if your ideas and your experience and your wisdom were all wrapped up in new seeds of potential action for other people in other cities, what advice would you give someone that is considering this? Yeah, the advice I give them that is that, you know, if little old me with no money and just a big idea can do this, so can any other very passionate person. And The key ingredients are X, Y, Z, and your homework is if you truly want to do this, go grab X, Y, Z ingredients and meet me back here and I'll help you do it. And I think the advice is really don't give up because people will laugh at you and people will tell you that it won't work. But I can tell you that if you just keep pushing through, you can prove them all wrong. Great. So has there been any books, websites, or films that have been particularly helpful in this process? Yes, thank you. Uh, The Story of Stuff is um, something that was very transformational for me. It was made many years ago, but it is classic and timeless. And I always encourage people to see it because it's what really opened my eyes long ago. And more recently, we just screened a 2019 film called The Story of Plastic. And had no relation to the other movies, um, but it is, wow, incredibly revealing in more ways than any other movie has ever done. So I really recommend those. It is hard to see that film and not have lasting images. <laughs> 
right? Yes, exactly. Like the bird feeding plastic to its baby. Yeah, and just how incredibly overwhelmed so many other countries are with our waste. Yep, just doesn't seem right. So what um, new things would you like to share with others that maybe you have on the horizon with your nonprofit? Yeah, so many things. Well, one of them is a crazy idea um, that I don't think is so crazy anymore. I've had it for about 10 years, and I've been telling people, mark my word, reuse reusables will one day be a municipal utility and trash pickup that will they will also pick up reusables and um, get them washed and redistributed to the places that can use them and uh, you know crystal oh crystal you're so you're so visionary but these are things that are too far off and way too overwhelming it would require such an overhaul it would require a building an entire new system and but I'd say um, I don't think that's true. I think that we have an existing system that's not working very well that could simply be modified to accommodate a societal shift to reusables, and that system is recycling. We have we have bins, we have trucks, we have routes, we have facilities and conveyor belts. Why not turn those recycling facilities, which are really struggling because their financial model is not sustainable, what if we adapted them um, to be re- redistribution? Center. And I'm not just talking about food and beverage containers. I'm talking about any and all retailer or manufacturer that, that needs or could use uh, durable, reusable goods instead of the stuff they're currently using. Think about Amazon. What if everyone who ordered from Amazon got a collapsible, reusable box and simply put it in their blue bin on their curb? And those blue bins were taken to the recycling facility, the crates were sorted off the line and shipped back to Amazon. Amazon would pay the recycling facility uh, each month, for example, to get those back. And they'd be happy to do so because those are valuable to them and help pay for themselves instead of using cardboard resources over and over. Meanwhile, the, the recycling industry would uh, may have a stable income, a revenue source that is not dependent on volatile global market. Um, and I really believe this is the future. And we got the amazing, late last year, the amazing opportunity to pilot this in the city of Durham. And our first pilot project was successful, and we are uh, designing our pilot number two. And we were highlighted in several tech conferences and the EPA Recycling Innovation Expo. And we're told that, you know, our little small potatoes, Podunk, Durham, North Carolina, is the only city having this conversation, is the only city who's actually doing something um, to create a new recycling that is more sustainable and is going to be the way of the future. So I'm very excited about that. And it might sound like really over the top to some people. But when you pilot something, you can do things on a small scale and then get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that stepwise experimental process is how big change is made. That's great. Yeah, I'd love to I'd love to see that. That it's kind of difficult just to take the idea, but to see it actually being um, implemented. Yeah, we have a little we have a little video that we made uh, to explain and show um, what the heck we're talking about. Uh, I can send that to you. And then uh, the other really cool thing is that we've designed a reusable pizza box, um, and you can check that out on greentogopizza.com. Excellent. 
and we'll be pilot testing reusable pizza boxes at one of our pizza locations. Um, and everybody will get their pizza and reusable, and they can scan to request doorstep pickup of their used container. And as far as I know, no one else is doing that. I've definitely not heard that, and I think that's an area that we definitely need it in because, I mean, often they say, you, you know, you can't really even recycle the pizza boxes because they get so greasy. And Pizza boxes are a giant conundrum. So how would you like people to contact you if they have uh, questions or want more information about how they can implement this in their city? Yeah, I would say you could go to don'twasterm.org. We have a newsletter that we send out once a month with lots of information and opportunities. They can email us at info at don'twasterm.org and can ask, you know, ask us for any of our, for information on any of our programs. And of course, we love to hear what people are thinking about or doing in their own city. So it's a, a great way to connect. Well, thank you so much for just being so innovative and thinking outside of the box and really applying all of your skills and abilities in such a really innovative and creative way. So thank you. Thank you very much for, t- for taking interest and in, um, for interviewing me. Thanks for joining us for Local Share Green Action. Until next time, let's all use our unique talents and abilities and take meaningful green local action that benefits the planet and people.